We're ultimately excited to have Dr. Paul Minkin, who's going to be joining us today. The three of us published a viewpoint, actually, in the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy May issue, and it was surrounding physical therapist's role in solving the opioid epidemic. This is Pain Refrain. Well, welcome back to another episode of Pain Reframe. We are super excited to have you guys back listening today, and we really like just to have a conversation about this viewpoint and hopefully stimulate more conversation and more discussion around this truly the epidemic of our time. So with no further ado, I'm going to welcome Paul Minkin to the show. Paul, welcome and tell folks where you're at and what kind of led you to this viewpoint. Thanks for having me. First of all, it's an honor to be on your show and uh, my students rave about it and I get great feedback from all of my colleagues that you guys are doing great work here. So kudos to you. I'm at the University of Colorado. I teach in the physical therapy program. I'm a professor there. I still practice in the clinic around 10 to 12 hours a week or so. You know, what really ignited me about this was actually Prince's death. Somebody that I grew up with, so many of his songs had so much emotional meaning for me that it really struck home. And we've lost so many amazing creative people, you know, Tom Petty and Michael Jackson and even Elvis, if you go back and look at his toxicology reports, he had codeine in his system when he overdosed. So we're losing, you know, too many people to this opioid epidemic. And, you know, if we could see these patients before they got on their opioids, I think we could make a huge impact on on the problem as a whole. And, you know, I see this over and over. People get injured, they go to their physician and they're prescribed pills for pain. And that's the start of their addiction. I mean, you look at heroin users, right? 75% of people that are addicted to heroin, their first introduction was a prescription pain medication, which is just astounding to me. You know, the Yahoo story that was about a year ago, but at this time, Drew Gintis, who was a high school wrestler, he started taking oxycodone as a senior. His uh, doctor prescribed it to him after a a shoulder injury that ended his, his wrestling career. And at 21, he died of a fentanyl overdose. And the DEA tweeted out, you know, addiction is not a choice, but choosing to start using drugs is in response to this story. And he was a child who was prescribed oxycodone by a physician, you know, some choice that is. One of my big fears is as a father, I have a 14 year old just entered high school. He's in a big high school in in Denver here, 2200 students. And I asked him, "How, how available are these opioid medications in high school? And he said, I know a lot of people. And I said, when you say a lot, do you mean five or more? And he said, yes. And I said, 10 or more? And he said, yes. He said, I can get perks. I can get kickers. I can get Captain Cody. I can get footballs, which are all street names for opioid medications. And they they sell for $7 a pill. He said, I can go in today with $7 and buy an opioid medication from more than 10 different people that he could walk up to in this school of 2,200 students. So as a parent, that's frightening to me. Unbelievable. You know, there's a report in the CDC by Shaw that looked at the rates of addiction at one year based on the initial prescription supply. If you're given a one-day prescription for an opioid, there's a 6% chance you'll still be taking it a year later. If it's seven days or more, that increases to 13.5%. And if it's more than a 30-day prescription, almost a third of those people will still be using prescription opioids a year later. So Wow. You know, a prescription for opioids after a musculoskeletal injury often serves as a catalyst for addiction and, 
a downward spiral that can ultimately lead to death. So my passion is PT needs to be at the front door for musculoskeletal pain, not at the back door, which is where we've lived in the past. You know, Paul, I really appreciate that. You know, here in Colorado with Tim and, and myself and the Colorado in Motion Group, you know, one of our big passions is industrial health. And one reason, there's many reasons for that, but one is that, you know, this chance to see people really, really early, you know, the day they get hurt or the, the day they're getting sore, to be able to have their them come to you and be a resource to, you know, have them take a breath and, and really look at their options and just kind of, you know, take a breather, evaluate, pause and help them make really good decisions. As I'm kind of looking where our profession's going in looking at how some of these problems, once they get momentum and get legs are really, really hard to reverse. I think a lot of what I see as a huge opportunity is to get ourselves in those spaces where we can offer what we do have to offer, which is a lot right up front before we have a litany of things already on board. Yeah. And I, uh, about 10 or 12 years ago, I used to work at UPS. I, I would uh, moonlight go in and work for them in their big facility here in, in Denver. It's a, it's a massive complex that looks like a Terminator movie on the inside. It takes you about 15 minutes to walk from one side to the other. But my job was to almost be like a, you know, an athletic trainer or you know, a, a primary care prevention person. And as soon as somebody got injured, I was sent immediately to the site. So it was direct access. There was no referral necessary. I would just work that shift while there's all these thousands of people working, loading, unloading packages, things like that. And I would see in a three-hour shift, I would see about 20 people. And they estimated that for every individual I prevented from going to the workers' comp physician, I saved the system $1,500 or so. That was kind of their average cost. And it was so empowering to me and to the patient to be able to see them right away, as soon as their pain started, give them the correct advice, give them some strategies, maybe modify their work environment for a short period of time, and there were two of us that did this. We worked on two different shifts, but we saved the company over a million and a half dollars a year just by seeing these people and not you know, sending everybody to the workers' comp position because as soon as they get into the, the medical system, as Tim knows, you know, it's a downward spiral for some people. You know, Paul, a lot of people will say to me, you know, Jeff, are you saying that that what doctors are doing is wrong? And I think sometimes it comes off that way, but that really is not is not the heart of the statement. I think what we're doing in that early phase, like you said, it gives that person who is is nervous and panicked, it gives them that reassurance that helps them make better decisions, whether that is what they do with their physician and what they advocate for themselves, but just gives them some really nice scope and perspective on, okay, here's what you're actually up against. Here's what you're not up against. Here's what this does not look like. So don't let yourself catastrophize and go down this pathway. There's no reason to believe that's the direction you're heading. So I think the biggest thing we do is we get the person's frame of mind in a much more positive scenario. So whether they go and consult with a physician or what have you, they're advocating for things that are a lot more reasonable. Yeah. And, you know, Beth Darnell talks about uh, Shakespeare's quote, there's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And she talks about with our thoughts, we create our future and we want to choose our thoughts very carefully. And the thoughts that our patients have a lot of times from, you know, just not knowing what's going on can be, you know, devastating. So how can we shape our patient's thoughts to give them the best possible outcome for this experience? So if through the wrong thought patterns, fear, catastrophization, negative mindset, like you talked about, our patients will actually grow pain, which is a, an amazing concept. So how do we place our attention and our thoughts to you know, minimize the ramifications of that? 
Well, we sure hope you're enjoying this great conversation with Dr. Paul Minkin. As we take a short break, we hope all of you are looking forward to the Align Conference coming up right here in Denver. That's going to be June 8th, 9th, and 10th. It's going to be at the Hilton Denver City Center. You can get more information at alignconference.com, but this is going to be an international group of speakers and presenters across all sorts of modalities on neural dynamics, on pain, on neuroscience education, dry needling, manual therapy. This is truly going to be a sensational weekend. So June 8th, 9th, and 10th. Make sure to mark your calendars. Make sure to get to alignconference.com and check that out. Now let's get back. Let's finish this conversation with Paul Minkin talking about the viewpoint recently published in JOSBT. I'd like to circle back to what you said, Jeff, and really you, Paul, in, in that idea of shaping their perspectives. And we have to realize that we are entering most mindsets have been influenced by the last 20 years. Again, you know, I'm young enough to understand that, you know, I watched TV before drug commercials were on, you know, I mean, that's a recent, recent event in the 90s, you know, that we are actually directly marketing drugs, pharmaceutical agents to consumers. Of course, at the same time, as you eloquently placed in the paper, you know, a massive push for OxyContin and marketing that really went into the medical schools, went into the physician groups. They were sold a bill of goods that this stuff is not harmful. And when we look at the way our society has been really misinformed and nefarious forces that we, you know, this isn't conspiracy stuff. This is well documented how we went to change prescribing patterns with physicians when people hurt. You know, I always say that we have to be the the antidote to this. We have to be very clear. You've been misinformed because our medical providers have been. It's now out there, but not everybody is aware. They were seriously misinformed. Our public was misinformed and just how dangerous these drugs were. I often say that opioids make your pain worse. I mean, you are more sensitive when you use these drugs. Your pain pressure thresholds actually go down. You actually get worse when you're on these drugs for for long periods of time. And I think what's happened is when people have, and we could maybe at some point talk about the whole tapering idea, when people obviously don't take them and they are dependent or addicted to these medications, they, they are going through withdrawal and the pain of withdrawal is significant, serious, then the mind believes, oh, these drugs are actually helping me uh, because, you know, you're now going through withdrawal, which is horrible. You know, the brain says this is even worse than being on the drug. And I think that those concepts and principles, you know, we just have to embed as a society, but really as physical therapists, we have to be very since the number one thing we see is pain, we have to be very versed in those conversations and being non-judgmental, but very clear on what these risks and what's really happening. Yeah. And, you know, in the physician's defense, Nora Volkow, who's at the NIH, she has a quote that says, students in veterinary school get five times as many hours focused on pain management as students in medical school. So they don't know how to deal with these patients. So it's an easy out for them to just write a prescription and, you know, maybe not have the discussion about physical therapy or, or that kind of thing. As physical therapists, I don't think it's our role to tell our patients to stop taking these medications if they've been on them for a long period of time, because that can be dangerous. I had a physician colleague contact me and say, you know, these patients that are on long-term opioids, one year, two years, 
that really should be done under the supervision of a medical professional, possibly with some uh, psychology, some counseling, things like that. So, and Beth Darnell's uh, research that was in JAMA Internal Medicine, you know, she did talk about tapering the opioids, and it was a very slow taper in the beginning, 5%, and then maybe a 10% taper down the line. And what she did find when, when the patients tapered their medications is their, their pain did not go up. But the other thing that's important for our profession is that the other variables that she looked at did not change. Their pain didn't go up, but their sleep did not improve, their depression, their anxiety, some of the other variables that she looked at. So that's, that's uh, roles for other healthcare providers, including us, that we can step in, maybe help the patient manage their physical activity. Some of the other variables are sleep, things like that. So Yeah, and that's a great point. When we had Beth on in the podcast, she had a great acronym of BRAVO that really talked about, you know, how you begin a patient assisting them and making a choice to taper off these uh, dangerous drugs. And you're absolutely right. This is a, the first step is acknowledgement and then broaching that subject, but it does require, you know, multiple people involved and really a team to, to reverse what's been months, years, and sometimes even decades in the making. Tim, I, I, I love this point that we're reflecting on. I think it actually might have been Anna Lemke who had the, the Bravo principle, and then we had Beth on right after Anna in both oh, very similar viewpoints. But I love this, like, this team thing we keep reflecting back to because we talk about how the solution has to be multidisciplinary. It's this really important two-phase process where on the front end, again, if we can access these people earlier, we can send them with a better mindset to the physician, right? So they're not showing up demanding imaging and demanding things that are more invasive because they haven't catastrophized for weeks and months before they get there. And that puts the physician in a way better spot to be able to be effective. And then on the other end, when folks are struggling and they are on sort of long-term opioid use, you know, our ability to broach that conversation. But like Paul said, really, really that physician helping us work with them and lead that part of the process, both of us working together on, on the prevention side and on the recovery side, you know, we have to keep embracing this team approach because while we each have skills on board, I, I think it's really, we're all part of the whole. Yeah. And I would argue on a counterpoint to that, you know, with, with musculoskeletal pain, a lot of times my goal is to prevent the patient from seeing a primary care physician in the first place, because again, five times less education hours in pain management than a veterinarian. I mean, they, they don't know what to do with these patients. You know, there may be, there may need to be some kind of medical intervention at some point, but you know, we started a direct access clinic at the University of Colorado Boulder in 2000. And we saw that as soon as we could see the patient's direct access where they could come in and see us, our referral rates to both the medical clinic, orthopedics, you know, all the other ancillary services was half of what it was in the medical clinic. So if we can see these patients up front, and it's if you've treated patients direct access, it is so much easier treating a patient with two days of low back pain versus two years of low back pain. I really think our role in the future is to be the gatekeeper for musculoskeletal problems. I mean, the orthopedists love the referrals they get from us because they're patients who potentially need orthopedic services, whereas primary care will default and say, I don't know anything about knee pain or I don't know anything about back pain. Let's send you to a specialist. And that starts that whole road of imaging and interventions and and that type of thing. And you know, as you're talking, Paul, I, I must be getting old because I guess it was in the 80s I entered the military, which was, that was the norm, you know? I mean, the musculoskeletal gatekeeper was PT, and then it went from that. And the difference, of course, were financial incentives. And I think we cannot 
have this conversation without discussing it's the financial incentives are misaligned in the traditional medical system. And I think, again, where we've shifted is that at least big business and medium-sized businesses are now understanding that whether they build a widget or a car, they are in the healthcare business. They are healthcare providers, and they have 15 to 20% of their finances going to healthcare. And it's like, okay, well, we're not getting a lot of value for that. We need to disrupt and do things different. And that's where I believe as we talked in that paper, these, you know, there is hope, I think, it, with these larger companies understanding that it is a entrance problem. It's where you start is where you end up. And it's maddening to me that we, when we look at practice guidelines, for instance, and in fact, I'll be meeting a bit with some workers' comp new guidelines coming up in our state. And it's like the questions we are asking are about this procedure versus this procedure. And those questions we've asked for the last three decades and the answers generally haven't changed a lot. What has changed is this idea, it's the entry point when you have these musculoskeletal problems. It's where you enter will determine your outcome and how much you pay. So we're asking the wrong questions. And we in, in our profession, I often say, are arguing against if we wiggle it or move it quickly versus sometimes we'll get in heated debates about that when what we should be saying at system-wise, our place has been shown to be upfront. It's not to, to say there aren't other points of entry, but any point of entry into musculoskeletal care should have low use of imaging, low use of pharmaceutical agents, high use of education, high use of touch, high use of exercise. So whoever you enter, you should be doing these things that have shown to be helpful so therefore, the label of the provider is not necessarily important, but we do know it is because, as you mentioned, training is not there in many of these musculoskeletal conditions or pain in general. Yep. It's not funny, but I think it's interesting that the way this thing really might wind up taking a turn for the best is going to be driven by private industry. You know, Tim, you and I talk all the time that companies of any significant size are realizing exactly what Paul spoke about earlier, that having somebody who has that musculoskeletal pain expertise to be able to differentially diagnose and to be able to strategize and get folks back on the field, if you will, them realizing the enormous savings of that. It's funny that a profit argument might wind up being the solution to the healthcare crisis because companies realizing having a person like that in place is an extremely solid competitive advantage. Them realizing that it's putting us in a spot where we can implement all these things up front and thus save sort of the back-end nightmare that oftentimes winds up being sequela of very basic non-sinister musculoskeletal pathologies and funny how it might shape up and it's going to go in the right direction. It might be driven by business. Yeah, and that New York Times article that came out recently about Amazon and Berkshire Hathaway and JP Morgan are looking at ways to kind of pool their resources for providing, you know, simplified, high-quality healthcare for their employees, free from profit-making and incentives and constraints and things like that. I think if big companies like that uh, jump on that, you know, 
it can have huge effects on on the healthcare system. Absolutely, and I think that's really at the end of the day that all of us listening have a have people that we communicate with daily that are uh, family business colleagues that are in our communities and just really promoting that that is the model and mindset that we need to take to the future of healthcare in our country with most of the majority often uh, musculoskeletal in nature. As we wrap up, do you have any kind of thoughts on what, where you see how this viewpoint hopefully will make some change or, you know, wh- what your thoughts are in the future here in this next year to two in, uh, as we go forward? Well, hopefully it will stimulate some dialogue. Hopefully it will foster discussion. Physical therapists, you know, as you like to say, have the Peace Corps gene and we don't like to tout our, our services and our benefits and that kind of thing. But the, the research on direct access to physical therapy is just overwhelming. The cost savings and, and the minimization of pharmaceutical use and surgical procedures and injections and things like that. All the research is coming out on surgeries like meniscal tears, things like that. You know, if you look at surgery versus not having surgery, patients look about the same about a year after. So, you know, trying conservative management at the front end, I think, is you know, where we need to go. And as PTs, we need to advocate for that and push for that and maybe step on some toes a little bit. That's my hope. That's a solid wrap. And I think it's a unanimous conclusion of what we've written and what we've discussed is it's about where we are in the system and what we're willing to to bring to that position. And, and the earlier we get folks, whether they go on and wind up in the medical industrialized complex or Paul, like you said, in a huge amount of cases, helping them not wind up in that spot. But if they do go, they go in a better frame of mind. They probably go with a better prognosis. If they don't go, that's better for them, better for their company and better for healthcare in general. So those of you wondering, well, what do I do? Well, find a way to get at these people early. Whether you're in industry, whether you push direct access in your community, make sure people are aware that you've got the knowledge and skills to really have a big play on the front end. Get yourself in that spot and be all you can be. Be of, be of some real use. Well, Paul, thanks so much. I mean, really appreciate you you spearheading this viewpoint and including Tim and I. It was a fun conversation and it really did you know spur up a lot of attention and, and, and questions and I've enjoyed following those up. So thanks for the opportunity and thanks for coming on the show. Oh, I appreciate it and uh, keep up the good work. I think you guys are uh, changing the world. So I'll keep following. Thank you, Paul. Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.